Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. But I wanted to also pick up on this this great opening of this book, it makes black skin, white masks so incredibly teachable um, because there is this sense of um, accusation and alienation, just the calling out of idiots and idiocy. But it's also true that if you pay close attention to the way that he works and the kinds of things that he wants his readers to discover, idiocy isn't always a bad thing. Mm, Yep. Say more about that. What do you mean? No. No. (laughs) I mean, by which I mean so, so central to his philosophy, I think both of politics and of being, um, is change, dynamism, Mm -hmm. discovery, right? So to already know is not the goal. Mm -hmm. To to learn, to undo, to unlearn actually um, the incredibly brutal embodiment of racial oppression, right? I mean, that is a in a way, it's a process of making oneself idiot or undoing oneself, right? Shrugging. And you see this, I think actually you see it really beautifully coming out in the style of his writing as he moves from Black Skin, White Masks, you know, which is a book that contains a lot of short, beautiful, poetic, declarative sentences, but it also contains a lot of philosophy, a lot of tortured sentences, mm-hmm. a lot of sort of learner's temporality, right? Mm-hmm. Um to the writing of the wretched of the earth, which couldn't be more bracing and brisk, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is not to say it's made for idiots, so to speak, but there is a kind of ethic or praxis of simplification. And, uh, and I don't mean oversimplification. I just mean, I don't know. You mean like elegance or something like that? Elegance, clarity, but I think also really like making space for, um, an intellect that is to come, right. That isn't Mm -hmm. burdened by, and so much of, I mean, maybe the parallel is not being Césaire's student, um, to having fought in the war. Maybe the parallel is having been a student in France at all. And this comes back to something that Tony mentioned earlier. This is, this is a book that's in a way it was a test thesis, right. But Mm -hmm. it wasn't accepted as a thesis. And so it's not for these people, for this institution, for France, Etc. I think that's right, and I think I mean I think the point about the your point about idiocy is also great because I think one of the ways I think of Fanon is unsparing is in terms of our kind of common sense, especially when it comes to racism, for example. Right? I mean that, that, that there's a way in which he anticipates one reaction of the book, which is, is essentially to say like, well, yeah, racism. We all agree racism is bad. It's a bad thing, bad thing. And you know, I, 
the question remains, we all think racism is a bad thing, and yet it, nothing has changed. So, I mean, I think the, the attempt to always go one step deeper than common sense, one step deeper than, you know, the, the, the most analysis goes, which I'm really glad you raised the question of the writing. Um, it's an incredibly teachable book, and at the same time, I always introduce it to my students by saying no one, anyone who tells you they, can, they understand this book in its entirety is lying. The one review, the book goes out of print almost instantly uh, when it's first published. But the one review that comes out essentially says this book is unreadable. Like this, that's methodologically a mess, which it is, intentionally. I mean, in the I most yeah. delightful way. Absolutely. And he says in the introduction, he's like, a book on, you know, sort of the psychology of racism should contain a methodology. I'm not going to do that. Like I'm not, I'm not going, I'm not going to lay out my uh, my results at the beginning. We're going to sort of find out together. So I think you're right. There is this kind of search that goes on, and explicitly in Black Skin White Masks, and I think Wretched of the Earth as well. I mean, even Wretched of the mm-hmm. Earth is often read as a blueprint, and kind of this is how to make a revolution. He kind of just stop. He keeps stopping along the way and looking up and saying, "Wait, how did we get here?" There's a, there's a point in the middle of the book where he says, uh, he pauses and he's like. It all used to be so simple. The bad people were on one side and the good people were on the other. <laughs> so I think there's this constant, yeah, this constant kind of journeying in the, in the thought and the writing as well. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, August 25th, 2017. So I have been told this is our fifth study session on France Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, published in 1961, which is the same year that he died. Interestingly, I just found out today that the last portion of this book was actually dictated to France Fanon's wife. He was at that point uh, suffering tremendously from leukemia. And so he verbalized what he wanted his white wife, suspected racist, to write down, which adds another layer for possible racist interference. The audio segment that we started off with, uh, that is from the podcast for social research. Uh, you can download that interview in its entirety. Uh, It was from August of 2016, uh, and it was about 70 minutes, uh, if you want to check it out and hear more of their dialogue. But just that right there, uh, for me, uh, as someone who is a freelance journalist, and we do a lot of reading on the program, I've interviewed a lot of authors. Anytime that a text is celebrated, particularly a text on racism, and we're celebrating this book, for being incoherent, that is a major red flag for me. I have seen, heard, read far too many books that do not make sense, are not coherent when it comes to dealing with racism. I don't think when you make a plan for we want a NASA space shuttle to go to the moon, we want an incoherent science book on astrophysics and space travel. I don't think that's the case. You want it to be exact and you want it to make sense. Super sense. We will get to the text. Frantz Fanon, The Wretched of the Earth, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one. So we must be sparing of our strength and not throw everything into the scales once and for all. Colonialism 
has greater and wealthier resources than the native. The war goes on. The enemy holds his own. The final settling of accounts will not be today, nor yet tomorrow. For the truth is that the settlement was begun on the very first day of the war, and it will be ended not because there are no more enemies left to kill, but quite simply because the enemy, for various reasons, will come to realize that his interest lies in ending the struggle and recognizing the sovereignty of the colonized people. The objectives of the struggle are not to be chosen without discrimination, as they were in the first days of the struggle. If care is not taken, the people may begin to question the prolongation of the war at any moment that the enemy's grants some concession. They are so used to the settler's scorn and to his declared intention to maintain his oppression at whatever cost that the slightest suggestion of any generous gesture or of any good will is held with astonishment and delight and the native burst into a hymn of praise. It must be clearly explained to the rebel that he must on no account be blindfolded by the enemy's concessions. These concessions are no more than sops. They have no bearing on the essential question, and from the native's point of view we may lay down that a concession has nothing to do with the essentials if it does not affect the real nature of the colonial regime. For as a matter of fact, the more brutal manifestations of the presence of the occupying power may perfectly well disappear. Indeed, such a spectacular disappearance turns out to be both a saving of expense to the colonial power and a positive way of preventing its forces being spread out over a wide area. But such a disappearance will be paid for at a high price, the price of a much stricter control of the country's future destiny. Historic examples can be quoted to help the people to see that the masquerade of giving concessions and even the mere acceptance of the principle of concessions at any price have been bartered by not a few countries for a servitude that is less blatant but much more complete. The people and all their leaders ought to know that historical law which lays down that certain concessions are the cloak for a tighter reign. But when there has been no work of clarification, it is astonishing with what complacency the leaders of certain political parties enter into undefined compromises with the former colonialists. The native must realize that colonialism never gives anything away for nothing. Whatever the native may gain through political or armed struggle is not the result of the kindliness or good will of the settler. It simply shows that he cannot put off granting concessions any longer. Moreover, the native ought to realize that it is not colonialism that grants such concessions, but he himself that extorts them. 
when the British government decides to bestow a few more seats in the National Assembly of Kenya upon the African population, it needs plenty of effrontery or else a complete ignorance of facts to maintain that the British government has made a concession. Is it not obvious that it is the Kenyan people who have made the concession? The colonized peoples, the peoples who have been robbed, must lose the habits of mind which have characterized them up to now. If need be, the native can accept a compromise with colonialism, but never a surrender of principle. All this, taking stock of the situation, this enlightening of consciousness and this advance in the knowledge of the history of societies are only possible within the framework of an organization and inside the structure of a people. Such an organization is set afoot by the use of revolutionary elements coming from the towns at the beginning of the rising, together with those rebels who go down into the country as the fight goes on. It is this core which constitutes the embryonic political organization of the rebellion. But on the other hand, the peasants, who are all the time adding to their knowledge in the light of experience, will come to show themselves capable of directing the people's struggle. Between the nation on a wartime footing and its leaders, there is established a mutual current of enlightenment and enrichment. Traditional institutions are reinforced, deepened, and sometimes literally transformed. The tribunals which settle disputes, the jamas, and the village assemblies turn into revolutional tribunals and political and military committees. In each fighting group and in every village host of political commissioners spring up and the people who are beginning to splinter upon the reefs of misunderstanding will be shown their bearings by these political pilots. Thus the latter will not be afraid to tackle problems which, if left unclarified, would contribute to the bewilderment of the people. The rebel in arms is in fact vexed to see that many natives go on living their lives in the towns as if they were strangers to everything taking place in the mountains, and as if they failed to realize that the essential movement for freedom has begun. The towns keep silent, and their continuing their daily humdrum life gives the peasant the bitter impression that a whole sector of the nation is content to sit on the sideline. Such proofs of indifference disgust the peasants and strengthen their tendency to condemn the townsfolk as a whole. The political educator ought to lead them to modify this attitude by getting them to understand that certain factions of the population have particular interests and that these do not always coincide with the national interest. The people will thus come to understand that national independence 
sheds light upon many facts which are sometimes divergent and antagonistic. Such a taking stock of the situation at this precise moment of the struggle is decisive, for it allows the people to pass from total indiscriminating nationalism to social and economic awareness. The people who at the beginning of the struggle had adopted the primitive Manichaeism of the settler, blacks and whites, Arabs and Christians, realize as they go along that it sometimes happens that you get blacks who are whiter than the whites and that the fact of having a national flag and the hope of an independent nation does not always tempt certain strata of the population to give up their interests or privileges. The people come to realize that natives like themselves do not lose sight of the main chance but quite on the contrary seem to make use of the war in order to strengthen their material situation and their growing power. Certain natives continue to profiteer and exploit the war, making their gains at the expense of the people, who, as usual, are prepared to sacrifice everything and water their native soil with their blood. The militant who faces the colonialist war machine with a bare minimum of arms realizes that while he is breaking down colonial oppression, he is building up automatically yet another system of exploitation. This discovery is unpleasant, bitter, and sickening, and yet everything seemed to be so simple before. The bad people were on one side and the good on the other. The clear, unreal, idyllic light of the beginning is followed by a semi-darkness that bewilders the senses. The people find out that the iniquitous fact of exploitation can wear a black face or an Arab one and they raise the cry of quote treason but the cry is mistaken and the mistake must be corrected the treason is not national it is social the people must be taught to cry stop thief in their weary road toward rational knowledge the people must also give up their too simple conception of their overlords the species is breaking up under their very eyes as they look around them they notice that certain settlers do not join in the general guilty hysteria there are differences in the same species such men who before were included without distinction and indiscriminately in the monolithic mass of the foreigners presence actually go so far as to condemn the colonial war the scandal explodes when the prototypes of this division of the species go over to the enemy, become Negroes or Arabs, and accept suffering, torture, and death. Such examples disarm the general hatred that the native feels toward the foreign settlement. The native surrounds these few men with warm affection and tends by a kind of emotional overvaluation to place absolute confidence in them. In the mother country, once looked upon as a bloodthirsty and implacable stepmother, many voices are raised, some those of prominent citizens, 
in condemnation of the policy of war that their government is following, advising that the national will of the colonized people should be taken into consideration. Certain soldiers desert from the colonialist ranks. Others explicitly refuse to fight against the people's liberty and go to prison for the sake of the right of that people to independence and self-government. The settler is not simply the man who must be killed. Many members of the mass of colonialists reveal themselves to be much, much nearer to the national struggle than certain sons of the nation. The barriers of blood and race prejudice are broken down on both sides. In the same way, not every Negro or Muslim is issued automatically a hallmark of genuineness. And the gun or the knife is not inevitably reached for when a settler makes his appearance. Consciousness slowly dawns upon truths that are only partial, limited, and unstable. As we may surmise, all this is very difficult. The task of bringing the people to maturity will be made easier by the thoroughness of the organization and by the high intellectual level of its leaders. The force of intellect increases and becomes more elaborate as the struggle goes on, as the enemy increases his maneuvers, and as victories are gained and defeats suffered. The leaders show their power and authority by criticizing mistakes, using every appraisal of past conduct to bring the lesson home, and thus ensure fresh conditions for progress. Each local ebb of the tide will be used to review the question from the standpoint of all villages and of all political networks. The rebellion gives proof of its rational basis and expresses its maturity each time that it uses a particular case to advance the people's awareness, in defiance of those inside the movement who tend to think that shades of meaning constitute dangers and drive wedges into the solid block of popular opinion, the leaders stand firm upon those principles that have been sifted out in the national struggle. And in the worldwide struggle of mankind for his freedom, there exists a brutality of thought and a mistrust of subtlety, which are typical of revolutions. But there also exists another kind of brutality which is astonishingly like the first, and which is typically anti-revolutionary, hazardous, and anarchist. This unmixed and total brutality, if not immediately combated, invariably leads to the defeat of the movement within a few weeks. The nationalist militant, who had fled from the town in disgust at the demagogic and reformist maneuvers of the leaders there, disappointed by political life, discovers in real action a new form of political activity which in no way resembles the old. These politics are the politics of leaders and organizers living inside history who take the lead with their brains 
and their muscles in the fight for freedom. These politics are national, revolutionary, and social, and these new facts which the native will now come to know exist only in action. They are the essence of the fight which explodes the old colonial truths and reveals unexpected facets, which brings out new meanings and pinpoints the contradictions camouflaged by these facts. The people engaged in the struggle, who because of it, command and know these facts, go forward. Freed from colonialism and forewarned of all attempts at mystification, inoculated against all national anthems. Violence alone, violence committed by the people, violence organized and educated by its leaders, makes it possible for the masses to understand the social truths and gives the key to them. Without that struggle, without that knowledge of the practice of action, there's nothing but a fancy dress parade and the blare of trumpets. There's nothing save a minimum of readaptation, a few reforms at the top, a flag waving, and down there at the bottom an undivided mass still living in the Middle Ages, endlessly marking time. The Pitfalls of National Consciousness History teaches us clearly that the battle against colonialism does not run straight away along the lines of nationalism. For a very long time, the native devotes his energies to ending certain definite abuses, forced labor, corporal punishment, inequality of salaries, limitation of political rights, etc. This fight for democracy against the oppression of mankind will slowly leave the confusion of neoliberal universalism to emerge, sometimes laboriously, as a claim to nationhood. It so happens that the unpreparedness of the educated classes, the lack of practical links between them and the mass of the people, their laziness and, let it be said, their cowardice at the decisive moment of the struggle will give rise to tragic mishaps. National consciousness, instead of being the all-embracing crystallization of the innermost hopes of the whole people, instead of being the immediate and most obvious result of the mobilization of the people, will be in any case only an empty shell, a crude and fragile travesty of what it might have been. The faults that we find in it are quite sufficient explanation of the facility with which, when dealing with young and independent nations, the nation is passed over for the race, and the tribe is preferred to the state. These are the cracks in the edifice which show the process of retrogression that is so harmful and prejudicial to national effort and national unity. We shall see that such retrograde steps, with all the weakness and serious dangers that they entail, are the historical result of the incapacity of the national middle class to rationalize popular action. 
That is to say, their incapacity to see into the reasons for that action. This traditional weakness, which is almost congenital to the national consciousness of underdeveloped countries, is not solely the result of the mutilation of the colonized people by the colonial regime. It is also the result of the intellectual laziness of the national middle class, of its spiritual penury, and of the profoundly cosmopolitan mold that its mind is set in. The national middle class which takes over power at the end of the colonial regime is an underdeveloped middle class. It has practically no economic power and in any case it is in no way commensurate with the bourgeoisie of the mother country which it hopes to replace. In its narcissism the national middle class is easily convinced that it can advantageously replace the middle class of the mother country. But that same independence which literally drives it into a corner will give rise within its ranks to catastrophic reactions and will oblige it to send out frenzied appeals for help to the former mother country. The university and merchant classes which make up the most enlightened section of the new state are in fact characterized by the smallness of their number and their being concentrated in the capital and the type of activities in which they are engaged business, agriculture, and the liberal professions. Neither financiers nor industrial magnates are to be found within this national middle class. The national bourgeoisie of underdeveloped countries is not engaged in production nor in invention, nor building, nor labor. It is completely canalized into activities of the intermediary type. Its innermost vocation seems to be to keep in the running and to be part of the racket. The psychology of the national bourgeoisie is that of the businessman, not that of a captain of industry, and it is only true that the greed of the settlers and the system of embargoes set up by colonialism have hardly left them any other choice. Under the colonial system, a middle class which accumulates capital is an impossible phenomenon. Now, precisely, it would seem that the historical vocation of an authentic national middle class in an underdeveloped country is to repudiate its own nature in so far as it is bourgeois. That is to say, in so far as it is the tool of capitalism, and to make itself the willing slave of that revolutionary capital, which is the people. In an underdeveloped country, an authentic national middle class ought to consider as its bounden duty to betray the calling fate has marked out for it, and to put itself to school with the people. In other words, to put at the people's disposal the intellectual and technical capital that it has snatched when going through the colonial universities. But unhappily we shall see that very often the national middle class does not follow this heroic 
positive, fruitful, and just path. Rather, it disappears with its soul set at peace into the shocking ways. Shocking because anti-national of a traditional bourgeoisie of a bourgeoisie which is stupidly, contemptibly, cynically bourgeois. The objective of nationalist parties, as from a certain given period is, we have seen, strictly national. They mobilize the people with slogans of independence, and for the rest, leave it to future events. When such parties are questioned on the economic program of the state that they are clamoring for, or on the nature of the regime which they propose to install, they are incapable of replying because, precisely, they are completely ignorant of the economy of their own country. This economy has always developed outside the limits of their knowledge. They have nothing more than an approximate bookish acquaintance with the actual and potential resources of their country's soil and mineral deposits, and therefore they can only speak of these resources on a general and abstract plane. After independence, this underdeveloped middle class, reduced in numbers and without capital, which refuses to follow the path of revolution, will fall into deplorable stagnation. It is unable to give free rein to its genius, which formerly it was wont to lament, though rather too glibly, was held in check by colonial domination. The precariousness of its resources and the paucity of its managerial class force it back for years into an artisan economy. From its point of view, which is inevitably a very limited one, a national economy is an economy based on what may be called local products. Long speeches will be made about the artisan class since the middle classes find it impossible to set up factories that will be more profit-earning both for themselves and for the country as a whole. They will surround the artisan class with a chauvinistic tenderness in keeping with the new awareness of national dignity, and which, moreover, will bring them in quite a lot of money. This cult of local products and this incapability to seek out new systems of management will be equally manifested by the bogging down of the national middle class in the methods of agricultural production which were characteristic of the colonial period. The national economy of the period of independence is not set on a new footing. It is still concerned with the groundnut harvest, with the coca crop and the olive yield. In the same way there is no change in the marketing of basic products and not a single industry is set up in the country. We go on sending out raw materials. We go on being Europe's small farmers who specialize in unfinished products. Yet the national middle class constantly demands the nationalization of the economy and of the trading sectors. This is because, from their point of view, nationalization 
does not mean placing the whole economy at the service of the nation and deciding to satisfy the needs of the nation. For them, nationalization does not mean governing the state with regard to the new social relations whose growth it has been decided to encourage. To them, nationalization quite simply means the transfer into native hands of those unfair advantages which are a legacy of the colonial period. Since the middle class has neither sufficient material nor intellectual resources, by intellectual resources we mean engineers and technicians, it limits its claims to the taking over of business offices and commercial houses formerly occupied by the settlers. The national bourgeoisie steps into the shoes of the former European settlement. Doctors, barristers, traders, commercial travelers, general agents, and transport agents. It considers that the dignity of the country and its own welfare require that it should occupy all these posts. From now on it will insist that all the big foreign companies should pass through its hands whether these companies wish to keep on their connections with the country or to open it up. The national middle class discovers its historic mission, that of intermediary. Seen through its eyes, its mission has nothing to do with transforming the nation. It consists, prosaically, of being the transmission line between the nation and a capitalism, rampant though camouflaged which today puts on the mask of neo-colonialism. The national bourgeoisie will be quite content with the role of the western bourgeoisie's business agent, and it will play its part without any complexes in a most dignified manner. But this same lucrative role, this cheap jacks function, this meanness of outlook and this absence of all ambition symbolize the incapability of the national middle class to fulfill its historic role of bourgeoisie. Here the dynamic pioneer aspect, the characteristics of the inventor and of the discoverer of new worlds, which are found in all national bourgeoisies, are lamentably absent. In the colonial countries, the spirit of indulgence is dominant at the core of the bourgeoisie, and this is because the national bourgeoisie identifies itself with the western bourgeoisie, from whom it has learnt its lessons. It follows the western bourgeoisie along its path of negation and decadence without ever having emulated it in its first stages of exploration and invention, stages which are an acquisition of that western bourgeoisie, whatever the circumstances. In its beginnings, the national bourgeois of the colonial countries identifies itself with the decadence of the bourgeoisie of the West. We need not think that it is jumping ahead, it is in fact beginning at the end. It is already senile before it has come to know the petulance, the fearlessness, or the will to succeed of youth.
The national bourgeoisie will be greatly helped on its way toward decadence by the western bourgeoisies who come to it as tourists avid for the exotic, for big game hunting and for casinos. The national bourgeoisie organizes centers of rest and relaxation and pleasure resorts to meet the wishes of the western bourgeoisie. Such activity is given the name of tourism and for the occasion will be built up as a national industry. If proof is needed of the eventual transformation of certain elements of the ex-native bourgeoisie into the organizers of parties for their western opposite numbers, it is worthwhile having a look at what has happened in Latin America. The casinos of Havana and of Mexico, the beaches of Rio, the little Brazilian and Mexican girls, the half-breed thirteen-year-olds, the ports of Acapulco and Copacabana. All these are the stigma of this deprivation of the national middle class, because it is bereft of ideas, because it lives to itself and cuts itself off from the people, undermined by its hereditary incapacity to think in terms of all the problems of the nation as seen from the point of view of the whole of that nation. The national middle class will have nothing better to do than to take on the role of manager for Western enterprise, and it will in practice set up its country as the brothel of Europe. Once again we must keep before us the unfortunate example of certain Latin American republics. The banking magnates, the technocrats, and the big businessmen of the United States have only to step onto a plane and they are wafted into subtropical climes. There for a space of a week or ten days to luxuriate in the delicious depravities which their quote, reserves hold for them. The behavior of the national landed proprietors is practically identical with that of the middle classes of the towns. The big farmers have, as soon as independence is proclaimed, demanded the nationalization of agricultural production. Through manifold scheming practices, they managed to make a clean sweep of the farms formerly owned by settlers, thus reinforcing their hold on the district. But they do not try to introduce new agricultural methods, nor to farm more intensively, nor to integrate their farming systems into a genuinely national economy. In fact, the landed proprietors will insist that the state should give them a hundred times more facilities and privileges than were enjoyed by the foreign settlers in former times. The exploitation of agricultural workers will be intensified and made legitimate. Using two or three slogans, these new colonists will demand an enormous amount of work from the agricultural laborers. 
in the name of the national effort, of course. There will be no modernization of agriculture, no planning for development, and no initiative. For initiative throws these people into a panic since it implies a minimum of risk and completely upsets the hesitant, prudent, landed bourgeoisie, which gradually slips more and more into the lines laid down by colonialism. In the districts where this is the case, the only efforts made to better things are due to the government. It orders them, encourages them, and finances them. The landed bourgeoisie refuses to take the slightest risk and remains opposed to any venture and to any hazard. It has no intention of building upon sand. It demands solid investments and quick returns. The enormous profits which it pockets, enormous if we take into account the national revenue, are never reinvested. The money in the stocking mentality is dominant in the psychology of these landed proprietors. Sometimes, especially in the years immediately following independence, the bourgeoisie does not hesitate to invest in foreign banks the profits that it makes out of its native soil. On the other hand, large sums are spent on display, on cars, country houses, and on all those things which have been justly described by economists as characterizing an undeveloped bourgeoisie. We have said that the native bourgeoisie which comes to power uses its class aggressiveness to corner the positions formerly kept for foreigners. On the morrow of independence, in fact, it violently attacks colonial personalities, barristers, traders, landed proprietors, doctors, and higher civil servants. It will fight to the bitter end against these people quote, who insult our dignity as a nation. It waves aloft the notion of the nationalization and Africanization of the ruling classes. The fact is that such action will become more and more tinged by racism until the bourgeoisie bluntly puts the problem to the government by saying, we must have these posts. They will not stop their snarling until they have taken over everyone. The working class of the towns, the masses of unemployed, the small artisans and craftsmen for their part line up behind this nationalist attitude, but in all justice let it be said they only follow in the steps of their bourgeoisie. If the national bourgeoisie goes into competition with the Europeans, the artisans and craftsmen start a fight against non-national Africans. In the Ivory Coast, the anti-Dahomen and anti-Voltaic troubles are in fact racial riots. The Dahomen and Voltaic peoples who control the greater part of the petty trade are, 
once independence is declared, the object of hostile manifestations on the part of the people of the Ivory Coast. From nationalism, we have passed to ultranationalism, to chauvinism, and finally to racism. These foreigners are called on to leave, their shops are burned, their street stalls are wrecked, and in fact, the government of the Ivory Coast commands them to go, thus giving their nationals satisfaction. In Senegal, it is the anti-Sudanese demonstrations which called forth these words from Mr. Mamadou Dia. The truth is that the Senegalese people have only adopted the Mali mystique through attachment to its leaders. Their adhesion to the Mali has no other significance than that of a fresh act of faith in the political policy of the latter. The Senegalese territory was no less real, in fact it was all the more so in that the presence of the Sudanese in Dakar was too obviously manifested for it to be forgotten. It is this fact which explains that, far from being regretted, the breakup of the Federation has been greeted with relief by the mass of the people and nowhere was a hand raised to maintain it. While certain sections of the Senegalese people jump at the chance which is afforded them by their own leaders to get rid of the Sudanese, who hamper them in commercial matters or in administrative posts, the Congolese, who stood by hardly daring to believe in the mass exodus of the Belgians, decide to bring pressure to bear on the Senegalese, who have settled in Leopoldville and Elizabethville, and to get them to leave. As we see it, the mechanism is identical in the two sets of circumstances. If the Europeans get in the way of the intellectuals and business bourgeoisie of the young nation, for the mass of the people in the towns, competition is represented principally by Africans of another nation. On the Ivory Coast, these competitors are the Dahomeans. In Ghana, they are the Nigerians. In Senegal, they are the Sudanese. When the bourgeoisie's demands for a ruling class made up exclusively of Negroes or Arabs do not spring from an authentic movement of nationalization, but merely correspond to an anxiety to place in the bourgeoisie's hands the power held hitherto by the foreigner, the masses on their level present the same demands, confining, however, the notion of Negro or Arab within certain territorial limits. Between resounding assertions of the unity of the continent and this behavior of the masses, which has its inspiration in their leaders, many different attitudes may be traced. We observe a permanent seesaw between African unity, which fades quicker and quicker into the mist of oblivion, and a heartbreaking return to chauvinism in its most bitter and detestable form.
on the Senegalese side, the leaders who have been the main theoreticians of African unity and who several times over have sacrificed their local political organizations and their personal positions to this idea are, though in all good faith, undeniably responsible. Their mistake, our mistake, has been under pretext of fighting Balkanization not to have taken into consideration the pre-colonial fact of territorialism. Our mistake has been not to have paid enough attention in our analysis to this phenomenon, which is the fruit of colonialism, if you like, but also a sociological fact which no theory of unity, be it ever so laudable or attractive, can abolish. We have allowed ourselves to be seduced by a mirage, that of the structure which is the most pleasing to our minds, and mistaking our ideal for reality. We have believed it enough to condemn territorialism and its natural sequel, micronationalism, for us to get the better of them and to assure the success of our chimerical undertaking. From the chauvinism of the Senegalese to the tribalism of the Yolofs is not a big step, for in fact everywhere that the national bourgeoisie has failed to break through to the people as a whole, to enlighten them and to consider all problems in the first place with regard to them, a failure due to the bourgeoisie's attitude of mistrust and to the haziness of its political tenets. Everywhere that national bourgeoisie has shown itself incapable of extending its vision of the world sufficiently, we observe a falling back toward old tribal attitudes, and, furious and sick at heart, we perceive that race feeling in its most exacerbated form is triumphing. Since the sole model of the bourgeoisies is, quote, replace the foreigner, and because it hastens in every walk of life to secure justice for itself and to take over the post that the foreigner has vacated, the small people of the nation, taxi drivers, cake sellers, and boot blacks, will be equally quick to insist that the Dahomeans go home to their own country, or will even go further and demand that the Fulbees and the Pills return to their jungle or their mountains. It is from this viewpoint that we must interpret the fact that in young independent countries here and there federalism triumphs. We now know that colonial domination has marked certain regions out for privilege. The colony's economy is not integrated into that of the nation as a whole. It is still organized in order to complete the economy of the different mother countries. Colonialism hardly ever exploits the whole of a country. It contents itself with bringing to light the national resources which it extracts and exports to meet the needs of the mother country's industries 
thereby allowing certain sectors of the colony to become relatively rich. But the rest of the colony follows its path of underdevelopment and poverty, or at all events sinks into it more deeply. Immediately after independence, the nationals who live in the more prosperous regions realize their good luck and show a primary and profound reaction in refusing to feed the other nationals. The districts which are rich in groundnuts, in coca, and in diamonds come to the forefront and dominate the empty panorama which the rest of the nation presents. The nationals of these rich regions look upon the others with hatred and find in them envy and covetousness and homicidal impulses. Old rivalries which were there before colonialism, old interracial hatreds come to the surface. The Balubas refuse to feed the Laluas. Katanga forms itself into a state and Albert Kalanji gets himself crowned King of South Kasai. African unity, that vague formula, yet one to which the men and women of Africa were passionately attached, and whose operative value served to bring immense pressure to bear on colonialism, African unity takes off the mask and crumbles into regionalism inside the hollow shell of nationality itself. The national bourgeoisie, since it is strung up to defend its immediate interests, and sees no further than the end of its nose, reveals itself incapable of simply bringing national unity into being, or of building up the nation on a stable and productive basis. The national front which has forced colonialism to withdraw cracks up and waste the victory it has gained. This merciless fight engaged upon by races and tribes and this aggressive anxiety to occupy the post left vacant by the departure of the foreigner will equally give rise to religious rivalries in the country districts and the bush minor confraternities, local religions, and marabaldic cults will show a new vitality and will once more take up their round of excommunications. In the big towns, on the level of the administrative classes, we will observe the coming to grips of the two great revealed religions, Islam and Catholicism. Colonialism which had been shaken to its very foundations by the birth of African unity, recovers its balance and tries now to break that will to unity by using all the movement's weaknesses. Colonialism will set the African peoples moving by revealing to them the existence of quote-unquote spiritual rivalries. In Senegal, it is the newspaper, New Africa, which week by week distills hatred of Islam and of the Arabs. The Lebanese, in whose hands is the greater part of the small trading enterprises on the western seaboard, are marked out for national 
obloquy. The missionaries find it opportune to remind the masses that long before the advent of European colonialism, the great African empires were disrupted by the Arab invasion. There is no hesitation in saying that it was the Arab occupation which paved the way for European colonialism. Arab imperialism is commonly spoken of, and the cultural imperialism of Islam is condemned. Muslims are usually kept out of the more important posts. In other regions, the reverse is the case, and it is the native Christians who are considered as conscious, objective enemies of national independence. And that is where we will end. We're still <clears throat> in the fifth chapter, Franz Fanon, The Wretched of the Earth. If you have commentary you would like to share, the number to dial 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you do not want to use your phone, uh, you still want to share your commentary, you can use the free VOPE line. It is linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. When you enter that address, click the left link on the page. It says free vote line. When you click it, it will open a small window on your screen. First line is a drop down menu. Select the number I just gave out 641 715 3640. Code 564 943. That's on the second line. You put in the code 564-943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in a nickname, real name. Uh, you can press random keys, whatever you're comfortable with. Once you get all that information entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the program. You should be able to hear us. Same procedure if you would like to participate. Look at your screen. You'll see the dial pad. Press star six. When you do so, you will hear an audio prompt. Press the number one. We will get you on the line. Uh, if you have commentary you would like to share, uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up, feel free. Line should be open. Yes, ma'am. Be heard. Yes, sir. Okay, this is Jimmy uh, Four here. Um, I've noticed from this reading that um, bourgeois was mentioned quite a few times. I think I've stopped recording after about 20, but I looked the word up and uh, basically 
rich men and not a middle class. But, you know, a lot of this reading pertains to uh, those people that he called the uh, nationalist bourgeois. But I think I'll start back where the colonized subjects are so starved of anything that humanizes him, even if it's third rate. These trivial handouts in some cases manage to impress him. His consciousness is so vulnerable and so uh, inscrutable that it is ignited by the slightest spark. And I think, uh, yeah, further on it said that, um, you know, the slightest concessions that you receive, um, it said the colonized would tend to break out into a song, you know, and, and that seems kind of comical, but if you think back, you know, in the civil rights struggle, you know, in the sixties in America, you know, that was a big part of it. Even if it was a victory or so-called victory or some type of achievement, you know, to accomplish the song, you know, we shall overcome or, you know, whatever. But <clears throat> you can relate a lot of this to, you know, present day uh, and our situation uh, here in America. I call this the deception of concessions, whereas they were saying that if you're not careful, that there's a constant risk that the people will ask, why continue the war? Everything the enemy makes the slightest, every time the enemy makes the slightest concession. So see, they they know how to uh, play you along. Um, you fall for your independence. You're on the verge of uh, running your country. And then uh, these concessions are given to you, well, even before you reach your independence, slightest concessions, and then you create uh, what it looks like, a buffer, because the, um, in order to receive these concessions or to act as an intermediary, the uh, nationalist, bourgeois nationalist, you know, is speaking for the masses of people, uh, to the elite or the so-called aristocrat. But the whole thing is they have lost touch with the masses of people. And it doesn't look like the condition of the nation is their best interest. They are lying in their pockets. But true to, uh, true to their nature, the whites, the European whites, turn the uh, masses against the bourgeoisie nationalists. And now you got this infighting. <clears throat> and also, um, we know that uh, it says the book said power does not give away anything for nothing. Whatever gains the colonized make through armed or political struggle, it's not the result of the colonizer's goodwill or his goodness of heart, but the fact that he could no longer postpone such concession. So they never plan to 
uh, give you what you're asking for anyway. It's just going to be some concession, not quite what you uh, are really looking for. And there's a part here that um, my book is a little different than what the reading was saying. Um, it's the bottom of the paragraph where they were talking about um, or the government deciding to um, grant uh, the African population. Uh, the British government was going to give some more seats to the Kenyan assembly. And at the end of that paragraph, it says the colonized, my book said, the colonized at the most can accept a concession from the colonial authorities, but never a compromise. But I think in the uh, reading, it says uh, something somewhat different, but it was saying not to accept a compromise. But I think in my reading, it, the word compromise he was replacing four principles. So in other words, they can accept a concession, which may not be what they wanted, but it'll be something. But as long as they don't compromise, they hold principles, you know, for whatever that means. And then the part where, <clears throat> like you were mentioning, uh, this book, it seems he could have chose different words. It seems to be um, intentionally written so that it won't be understood when he uses the word uh, uh manchism of the colonizer you know when you look that up it's like um you know a black versus white or something that's you know visibly uh different you know and then he goes on to say arab versus infidel and then that some blacks can be whiter than whites, and that the pro prospects of a national flag of independence does not automatically result in certain segments of the population giving up their privileges and their interests. And at this point, it seems like he goes to blaming the victim. Uh, I mean, maybe not blaming, but getting away from who's the real corpus here. You know, who's really causing these problems? And it's the uh, European uh, oppressors. <clears throat> and then he goes on to use other words in my book, like uh, penumbra, which means like an eclipse. So in other words, these nationalists are creating this uh, shade or this uh, some type of covering over what the real truth is and then what the uh masses of people uh what he's saying what the people should be doing is calling the nationalists thieves and then looking at them and not just the oppressors and then the part where i wrote down uh tim wise is that after a certain length of time um it said that these examples diffuse the overall hatred which the colonized feel towards the uh, foreign settlers. The colonizer welcomes these men with open arms, and in the absence 
excess of emotion tend to place absolute confidence in them. So the way the events uh, are folding out, the slightest person that wants to join, you know, from they call another species, you know, or from the other side to help you, you welcome them, welcome them with open arms. And uh, that type can be dangerous, we know. But um, I'll save the last part for later. I got something on the national consciousness, but I'll mute my line for now. Thanks for taking the call, girl. Indeed, Mr. Demi Four. He said Tim Wise. Wow. Uh, other folks that we've uh, not heard from at all, if you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Oh, did you have commentary, uh, retired firefighter, or did you need more time? Gather your thoughts. Might need a little bit of time. We can uh, check in on you a little later, retired firefighter. Uh, some of the notes that I took, um, and other folks that are listening in, press star six if you have commentary. Uh, other folks uh, or other comments that I took, uh, some of my own notes, uh, I am not going to start uh, at the beginning of the segment that we read today, the ending of the section on spontaneity and moving forward. Uh, I'm skipping to a portion that's closer to the end of our first audio segment today. Something I thought was very important. This was mentioned in Sartre's introduction, uh, where he was talking about, uh, he was saying that he thought, you know, Fanon did such a great job of repudiating the mythology of, of African unity, this uh, kind of romanticized notion that, you know, all black people are in this together on the continent and, you know, we're going to make it happen together as one one big continent. And so I said, wow, you know, is that the case? Is that in Wretched of the Earth? Let's see if that pops up. And wham, oh, there it is, uh, where he writes, we observe a permanent seesaw between African unity, which fades quicker and quicker into the mists of oblivion and a heartbreaking return to chauvinism in its most bitter and detestable form. We have allowed ourselves to be seduced by a mirage, that of the structure, which is the most pleasing to our minds and mistaking our ideal for reality. We have believed it enough to condemn territorialism and its natural sequel, micro-nationalism, for us to get the better of them and to assure the success of our chemical undertaking. I thought that was uh, extremely important. I think this notion of just because you are a black person, we are all in it together. I think that that is not helpful and it's just not reality based. I mean, you see that every day. It's just, it is not. Uh, you want to go with the truth, that which is. It is not that just because you are, you know, this dark, you have this much melanin and I have this much melanin, that means that we automatically are going to get along and have similar views on racism or economics or breakfast cereal or whatever it is. That's just not the case. Uh, and in my view, promoting that line of thinking that, you know, black people are just going to, because on the basis of us being black, we're going to be able to get things together and do something. I just, I don't see any evidence that that is true. Uh, and I think anytime you're telling yourself things that are not true, you are setting yourself up for failure. I don't often hear this being something, this particular passage where he talks about this mythology of African unity 
or at minimum not having a code on how to achieve this, which he talks about later in the, in the paragraph, I don't hear people reference that when they talk about Fanon. Uh, the segment that I played at the beginning of the program, that hour program, I don't recall that coming up in their conversation. I listened to the whole thing, even though I only played maybe three or four minutes of it at the, uh, for the intro. Most of the time, and I think even people have said this, most of the time when people talk about Fanon, it's just about violence. This, I think, is, you know, a significant uh, critique uh, that continues to be a problem and is a, a problem beyond the continent. You have people that are right here in North America. Uh, who have the same line of thinking that, in my view, is incorrect. That was one thing that I thought was really important. The the bulk of the rest of what we read today just reaffirmed or it reminded me of why I did not want to read this book. Uh, this is a book I think Gus would, I would tap out on, and I'm going to closely monitor participation because we would not underline, highlight, bullface print. We would not we would not be reading this book at all. Uh, listeners unanimously picked this book, and I, I suspect most of the people who picked this book hadn't read it. Uh, I hadn't read this book in its entirety, but I had read half, and I've read other Fanon books in their entirety more than once. I'm very familiar with his style of writing and a lot of his views, and oh man, I would not direct anyone to, oh yeah, you need to read Fanon to brush up on racism. Uh, and in fact, I would still with tremendous suspicion, particularly given what we read today, I would encourage extraordinary uh, suspicion. Let me see some of the highlights as to why I felt that way today. Um, starting where he says, for me, this is, I guess, on page 141, quite simply, because the enemy, for various reasons, will come to realize that his interest lies in ending the struggle and in recognizing the sovereignty of the colonized people. I don't know to me that sounds like ending racism. I've seen no in, I've seen no evidence that whites are going to realize that it is in their interest to end the struggle. Uh, if ending the struggle means ending white supremacy, no, I've seen no evidence that white people realize that if anything, it is the exact opposite. If we stop the practice of white supremacy, uh, our very existence as individuals classified as white will cease. That seems to be the mentality that I see worldwide right up to today, 2017, where he says, they used to be, they are so used to the settler's scorn and to his declared intention to maintain his oppression at whatever cost, that the slightest suggestion of any generous gesture or any goodwill is hailed with astonishment and delight. Uh, <laughs> it's hard for me to take that sort of critique from someone who's married to a white person. I'd I would submit that the same thing could be happening with him being married to a white woman. I could be in error. That said, it's not surprising. As a psychiatrist, we've had a black mental health professional or three on this program before. It sh at least to me, it should not be surprising uh, the ways that our victimization is manifested. Uh, when you have been terrorized, it's not surprising uh, to be gleeful if your tormentor shows you an act of kindness. We talked about Stockholm Syndrome before. That's not surprising. Enough. Even that tone for me, people can be very condescending when talking about the way that black people respond to centuries of terrorism. When you see a lot of these same human behavior patterns in any group of people that are subjected to terrorism, black people have been collectively terrorized for centuries. Moving forward, uh, where he says...
Sometimes happens that you get blacks who are whiter than whites, and the fact of having a national flag and the hope of an independent nation does not always tempt certain strata of the population to give up their interests or privilege. Uh, again, for me, blacks who are whiter than white is hard for me to accept that from someone who is married to a white person. What's the cutoff point for being whiter than white? What does that even mean exactly? Um, he's been to France and studied in France. I mean, what do you even mean when you make a statement like that in the system of white supremacy? And I know that that view is very popular uh, to, you know, criticize and rebuke other victims of white supremacy, particularly other black people. I know that's very popular. Haven't seen where it's constructive or solves any problems. Uh, continuing. Uh, the militant who faces the colonialist war machine with the bare minimum of arms realizes that while he is breaking down the colonial oppression, he is building up automatically yet another system of exploitation. This discovery is unpleasant, bitter, and sickening, yet everything seemed to be so simple before. The bad people were on one side and the good on the other. The clear, unreal, idyllic light of the beginning is followed by a semi-darkness that bewilders the senses. The people find out that the iniquitous fact of exploitation can wear a black face or an Arab one. And, and he just goes from there. In my view, we just, Mr. Fuller has it on page one. If you don't understand the system of white supremacy, what it is and how it works, everything else will confuse you. Quote unquote, colonialism can end and you still have the system of white supremacy. And even better, the individuals classified as white can retreat, maybe even exit the continent completely so that things are still messed up and pretty similar to the way that they were before, quote unquote, colonialism ended. Now it just looks like you got a whole lot of black people that are in charge. They seem to have shown us that for about the last 50 years, and maybe we even got a taste of it with eight years of President Obama here stateside. But it seems like they, you know, are able to do that without much difficulty. And sometimes we get confused uh, or our frustrations get redirected to those black people that we think are messing it up and helping to keep all this going. Uh, continuing. The settler is not simply the man who must be killed. Many members of the mass of colonialists reveal themselves to be much, much nearer to the national struggle than certain sons of the nation. Tim Wise, Jane Elliott, John Brown, Heather Hadley, what's the name from Charlottesville? The list goes on and on and on. William Bill Ayers, we had him on the program with Students for Democratic Society. Uh, lengthy list of whites who are more black than black people, whatever that means. And again, again, from someone married to a white person. Like I said, the first time I read Fanon, I didn't know he was married to a white person and I did not understand what that meant, the context of that, ramifications of that. Second time around, I did. Now, I certainly do. It's a very different read. It's very, very, and I would just say this, you know, for anyone in the universe, person is married to a white person, person has had offspring with a white person, it's going to be very, very hard for me to read their text and be like, oh, wow, you know, this is a true scholar, particularly if they're married to the white person at the time that they wrote the book. Uh, like I said, the last portion of this text was dictated to Frantz Fanon's white wife, as has been reported. Uh, continuing, a few other things I'll get out and then we'll check, see if uh, you have others who have commentary they want to share. Uh, let's see. When he says violence alone, violence committed by the people, violence organized and educated by its leaders makes it possible for the masses to understand social truths and gives the key to them. It even <laughs> it reminds me of Chris Rock, 
the segment where he he says uh, his uncle is married to a white woman. And she's like, you know, I kill her first, you know, to show these crackers I mean business. And, and oh, wait, that's what it reminds me of. He has to 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 dictate the last portion of this to his white wife. Anyway, continuing uh, other things that I. <clears throat> Again, uh, where he's doing his critique of the the bourgeois and the middle class and the educated class, is Fanon a part of the educated class? He's had all this specialized education. He's a, a trained physician, a psychiatrist. He's married to a white woman. I mean, uh, let's see where he says. Uh, hmm. A lot of repudiation of the middle class. I was going to break out my word guide since it's right here. Uh, where Mr. Fuller advises against using the concept of middle class. I know that was very popular in this time period of the 60s. Marxism and a class analysis, which is still very popular in my view, uh, encouraged by racists because it confuses an accurate understanding of what racism, white supremacy is, how it works. Uh, But this class analysis and that the middle class are messing it up and whatever values and interests that they have, uh, it reminded me However, they are functioning, the black middle class at that time, whatever it is that they're doing, whether they're interested in ending colonialism, white supremacy, whether they're interested in just getting the best that they can for themselves, whites are most to blame for that, in my opinion. All of the schools set up in that area, they're learning uh, everything about how that place of how that area of the world operates and really the entire planet that we are under. Racists have set that up. So we are responding to something that we are not in control of. And in fact, the people that are in authority are flagrantly hostile to us. So that's going to be reflected in our behavior in a myriad of ways. They lie to us all the time and give us inaccurate information. So a lot of our behavior is going to be very, very confused. And I just I consistently I hear when people talk about this, it just seems like there's a lack of compassion where one could even read this as a rebuke. Like, yeah, these people are are messed up. You know, these no good coon, Sambo, middle class black people are messing it up and not doing it right. And that's why we can't get this problem solved. I hear a lot of people. That's exactly how they analyze this problem today. And I just take the position that, well, You can go that route, but I don't think sitting around wagging your finger at other black people is going to solve any of our problems, especially if the person wagging the finger is married. Uh, Retired firefighter, did you have commentary? Are you needing a little bit more time to get your thoughts together, sir? Greetings, everyone. Uh, Yeah, what I was saying about is a question uh, is... uh, did uh, Franz Fanon actually create these many different terms that uh, comes up in the book time and time again, like uh, lumpen uh, proletariat, uh, bourgeoisie, uh, you know, these many different terms. Uh, what, what does everybody else have to say about that? Then I'll go, go uh, further. I think lumpen proletariat is uh, from Karl Marx and uh, Frederick Engels, uh, their work. Uh, I think those are the terms that they use in their uh, kind of class analysis of the problems on the planet, unless I am in error. Okay. Uh, bourgeois. Did, uh, did Mr. Demi Ford, did you have, were you going to respond to firefighters question? Oh, yes. I was going to say, uh, I was thinking the same thing. A lot of the terms they're using are Marxist terms, and it just seems 
I don't know, it seems strange to use those those terms when you describing, you know, the uh, oppressor or the enemy. And I'll leave my line. Like I say, I counted 20 bourgeois. And uh, it's confusing with these this wording. You know, even some of the more uh, terms that are, that are closer to uh, those of us who have existed for the most part in this part of the world, like settlers, I've heard that. You know, all of these, all of these different, I don't, I don't know the, the, the tag to put on them uh, collectively, but it would be a lot more simpler. And I would also question accuracy to just state white people and non-white people or, and or victims of racism, white supremacy. And this probably leads to uh, why it is attractive to white people, the book itself, or any book, I mean, or any book of, of this similar nature, uh, because it does not directly uh, indict white people for causing the world's problems. It, it does. It doesn't. It, 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 it gives. It gives to their more refined white person who practices racism. It gives them, uh, you know, at least at least some psychological uh, uh, escape. Uh, that well, they're, they're talking about. They're talking about the 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 other white people and not uh, so to speak. So I can see. I can see how it, it would be uh, politically. Uh, Easy for them to digest uh, these, including including the white woman he was having sex with. Uh, I because if, if you if you uh, if you uh, look at like Mr. Fuller's books and the the words and the way he explains things in a more direct form, it is very few white people that pick up that type of uh, language and don't have a problem with. I haven't heard nobody, no white person yet that said that his books are all right. His books is right on the mark, uh, is accurate on racism. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I, but I haven't heard a white person yet, but yet a lot of them would admit they know who he is. Uh, uh, so it, it that 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 gives me a caution light on his information now before I had a better understanding of a more accurate basically a more accurate understanding of racism white supremacy i did i heard i heard of Franz Fanon before I heard of mr fuller but primarily what it what it always gave off to me uh from people either talking about the two books or uh, suggesting that it's read, it becomes it, it, it become more symbolic more so than anything. Uh, because by the time I, it came across to me, it was kind of like a symbol, the, the two books. These are the two books that you're supposed to read if you are a, uh, if you are a black person who is uh, quote unquote, like whatever that means, you know, and uh, organizations like the Black Panther Party, 
would have that as quote unquote required reading. And I would hear that language from those people like Fred Hampton, uh, Huey Newton, you know, you, you would hear those, I mean, you can, you can get their recordings right now and hear, hear, uh, if they, if they're not, if they're not, uh, quoting Franz Fanon or using aspects of that language. Yeah. So yeah, those are just my observations, you know, with it, you know, with it, with the book period. And, uh, we can go on from there. Thank you. Uh, I'm nabbing Emmy. I will say again, the only reason we're reading this book is because we had uh, unanimous votes from listeners. So the listener participation should be exemplary. Now, we have poor listener participation from a book Gus did not want to read and is not enjoying. Uh, That's when I get a little less excited about having listeners vote and pick for books. Uh, That's when I'll just say, well, I can pick books that I'd like to read. And then if listeners do not participate, well, at least I'm entertained because I'm picking a book I enjoy. That is not the case with Fanon. Uh, Emmy, did you? Oh, and I was going to say, in the words of Mr. Nero, white people kill for fun. That cannot be minimized in the culture of white supremacy I think there's a lot of evidence that white people sometimes will support anything that is about violence. Emmy, did you have commentary you were going to share? You should be with us. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, beautiful people. Um, I made a mistake. I was one of the people who was very psyched about reading Wretched of the Earth only because I had it was just part of the literary canon, um, which, I mean, it doesn't mean much because, but it was part of the, or is part of the literary canon that I wanted to read. Um, I'm not too impressed. Um, I had high hopes, but um, I'm a very firm believer that things that are complex should be explained simply. And if you can't explain them simply, then it means that you don't understand it. The more big words you have to use, the more convoluted the writing or the speaking, um, it, it, the more intellectual, quote unquote, the more academic, pretty much the less you actually know. And I stopped kind of really uh, valuing the text um, or enjoying it, at least when the last time that I commented, uh, when he was speaking about the native folk and he mentioned that so much text is written about these folks but that they're illiterate and I was just like but isn't this book supposed to be like for them but I if they're illiterate why would you write it this way and so then I just you know you're either writing it for other academic intellectual non-white people but even then still because what's the point of that um, or to white people in which case I'm not I don't know, in, in, in the most colloquial way that I can say it, I'm not really rocking with it. So um, I'm listening, but it's not doing much for me, the text. I'm not really gaining as much as I had hoped. Um, I did appreciate the, you know, whatever he's attempting to do. Um, but after that, like, it's it's just too much jargon for me to really think that there's any value in it. Um, I think most potent things are said in a very simple way. Um, 
I've noticed kind of like a theme. I know we're not at the end of the book, so it's not like theme time, but I thought at the, in the beginning, I thought the text was going to speak to the people. So not about the people. And I feel like this text speaks more about the people. And when I say the people, I mean non-white people, indigenous people, native people, um, just non-white people. But to me, it doesn't seem, it does not feel as though he is talking to the people, just about the people. Um, and I thought there would be suggestions. I thought there would be some, even if it wasn't codified or constructive, you know, now, but I thought there'd be some suggestions and I don't see that at all. Um, I also kind of hoped that as a psychologist or psychiatrist, I think he's a psychiatrist, excuse me, um, that there would be a lot more clear scientific psychological analysis of white people, uh, whether he called them white or colonial or whatever, it really does not seem that. It, it, it reads to me, it feels to me more just like a bunch of superfluous observations linked together in, in like some kind of loose theme because it doesn't, it, it, to me it's just too unstructured. And I don't know if that's because it's written in another language um, and it's in French and I speak English. So it's like maybe the difference between a Latin language and a Germanic language in terms of it being just too fluffy. You know, they say that English is very like boom, boom, boom. And all the other like Latin languages are flowery and stuff. So I don't know if that's what it is, but it just seems like a bunch. Buckets and buckets of words. Um, and I even in the buckets and buckets of words, I would have appreciated some, like I mentioned, um, some predictions, I think as a scientist, that's the point of science to make, be able to make predictions. Um, maybe he did and it just went over my head or I wasn't really paying attention, but um, those are just some of the things that have kind of said, okay, well, I'm glad that I'm participating. I would have to concur uh, that I would not recommend this text um, to anybody who is seeking to understand the system of white supremacy or even just people who wanted to read about post wanted to read post-colonial writings he wouldn't be um someone that I would recommend or that I would suggest or this particular text maybe his other ones I've never read anything by him I had never even looked at his picture until we were getting ready to read the book um and so I'm here I'm gonna participate because I emphatically voted for this text Gus but um no, I'm not really, it's not doing a lot for me. So, but I'm here. So thank you all for listening. Present, accounted for, much obliged. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's uh, just within this context, I'm feeling much better today. Uh, hopefully I'll be feeling even better tomorrow. But having suffered back pain through much of this month, uh, to the point where I could not write, where I had an actual written assignment and I could not write uh, because I was in so much pain. They have, you know, all kinds of equipment now. You don't need a white wife to do your dictation. Uh, you know, they got Siri and all kinds of other apps where if I had wanted, I could have just, you know, as opposed to typing, I could have just dictated and the computer could have written out, you know, my speech and I could have still written my essay on time. I did not because I was, if you're in enough pain that you can't write for yourself, 
I think it's going to be very difficult for you to speak coherently to someone else. And I don't know how other people, what your writing process is, but I mean, if you write and you have to go back and edit something or change a sentence, I have no idea what that looks like if you're having to verbalize this. So you say it to someone else and they're writing and now they have to go back and you oh man, I can, and the person is white. Oh man, you're sick. I can also say if you, when it gets to that point where you're so sick or you, your health uh, is, has deteriorated to the point that you cannot sit up, you can't sit down and write because of discomfort. I just, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to think uh, in a lucid manner uh, and translate that to someone else. I know uh, the thing that I found, it was very difficult for me to concentrate uh, while I was in uh, experiencing back pain uh, because there was nothing I could do to alleviate the pain. And it just becomes very, very difficult to concentrate. And in order to write, you have to be to write well, to write coherently, in my opinion, you have to be able to concentrate and focus. And if your health is deteriorating, he died the same year this book was published. Uh, and also, just for the record, I am tremendously suspicious of any text that is, I mean, you talk about something that is pasteurized. What do I mean when I say pasteurized? This book, written by Frantz Fanon in French, the last bit of it, his health so bad that he had to dictate it to his white wife, suspected racist, to write out the rest. Then, for us here in the States to read it, another white person had to come in and translate what was edited and originally published in French. Another white person had to come in and translate that to English, and that probably involved getting another editor to come in and then edit the translation to the English version. That's what I mean when I say this is a very pasteurized text. A lot of white fingerprints are on this book that is the alleged revolutionary manifesto for Negro uprising, violent Negro uprising. You have got to be joking. <laughs> you have got to be joking by someone married to a white person. Folly. Couldn't make that up. Uh, the person who dialed in, uh, and since I'm being very critical, if I'm not making sense, if I'm you know saying something that just seems like I'm disparaging a very important text uh, that offers crucial information about racism, white supremacy, then you should speak up immediately because I do make mistakes. I'm a victim of white supremacy and I could be in error. The person uh, who dialed in 3637, did you have commentary? Can I be heard okay? Yes, ma'am. All right. Uh, this is caller from, from 712. Just wanted to chime in and let you know, you, you do got listeners out here that are listening to the book, but, I mean, I'm going to be honest, I'm, I'm confused. I only did two years of college that was at a community college. I mean, I took English literature, but maybe that's the reason why this book is being promoted by um, white people, because it is just confusing. I'm finding myself having to go back and listen to it not two times, but maybe even three times. And that's why I really want you to put part three in the um, iTunes if you can, Gus. Um, that's, that was all really I had to say. I, I'm just listening and I'm really trying hard to understand, but I was, it's probably why they promote this book because it's confusion. I mean, my life. 
thank you for reminding me of that. That that's what I mean about pain. It can be that stifling uh, that I could. We did do the program last week. Uh, I had canceled a number of programs because I was uh, in that much pain, but. Uh, I did not even upload the program. I, I don't recall what I did exactly after I got off the program, but I'm sure I took uh, pain medication and uh, continued to labor through uh, last weekend. But I will get that taken care of since I'm I'm feeling much, much better now. But that's what I mean about pain. For now, I mean, uh, I don't think uh, I'm on death's doorstep today, but for now, I passed away uh, the same year that this book was published. That has a <laughs> it would have to have a huge impact just on your uh, thinking uh, and how you're processing, how you're putting together uh, ideas uh, if you're dealing with uh, a fatal illness uh, at that point to the point where you're not even able to sit and write yourself anymore. Uh, did we have, oh, we had people who did write in. My fault. I meant to include those as well because I missed some of those with, again, being in pain. I did not uh, read the emails from last week. So some of the folks wrote in. It is an understatement to say that The Wretched of the Earth <clears throat> is a challenging read for me. Thank God for my iPhone, which provides a ready-made dictionary for continual use while reading. Thanks to you and all the callers whose discussion related to the second book read I found helpful. I have read through the first chapter on violence a couple times, and my initial thought is that the first half of the chapter places the blame for the condition of the colonized on racism, white supremacy, when it discusses the various ways the colonized have been subjugated in all areas of people activity, economics, education, sex, etc. The second half of the chapter, chapter suggests that the problem is capitalism, fascism, imperialism, and the solution to the problem is socialism, not the elimination of racism, white supremacy. The last paragraph of the chapter encapsulates what is, for me, Fanon's paradox. But it is obvious we are not so naive to think this will be achieved with the cooperation and goodwill of the European governments. The colossal task, which consists of reintroducing man into the world, man in his totality, will be achieved with the crucial help of the European masses who would do well to confess that they have often rallied behind the position of our common masters on colonial issues. Uh, that's the end of Fanon's quote. What is the distinction between European governments and European masses? Are they not essentially one in the same? Do they not both represent the colonist and thus the perp uh, perp uh, perpetrators of the crimes against the colonized? Today, I think that the same distinction is often used when the term institutional racism is invoked. I'm going to read another person uh, who wrote commentary in for Wretched of the Earth. Uh, I just wanted to add, we have read challenging books before. We've read authors who were born outside the United States. Uh, we read uh, Chinua Achibe. Uh, we read uh, Ayi Kwe'i Arma, 2000 Seasons. Uh, we read Dr. Marimba Aini. She was born in the States, but that's uh, also a challenging book. And in my top five, I, am, I may add, it's not that I have a problem. Uh, or I'm opposed to reading books that challenge your vocabulary, make you, you know, look up a word or two. I remember we read Urugu. That is certainly a book you are going to need your dictionary handy when you read Dr. Anid's book. But that book is coherent. You, In my view, if you have your dictionary in that book, you can connect the ideas from paragraph to paragraph, sentence to sentence in terms of what she's saying and draw clear, coherent uh, analysis concepts uh, about how you should think and proceed and view the world. It's very difficult for me to do that in this book. It also probably helps that Dr. Ani is not married to a white person, unless I've been misinformed. Uh, the other person wrote in, 
Well, let me see if I can get in this. So this uh, female, black female, she's responding to my question on why white people uh, have, uh, why Jean-Paul Sartre was chosen to write the preface for the book. She says, one reason why I think a white person was chosen uh, was to give it validation. Since at that time, and probably still to this day, non-white people have a need to be validated by white people. Although Fanon was a psychiatrist who understood and studied mental disorders in people, colonialism, white supremacy being the major mental disorder on the planet, in my opinion, I do not think that his work would have received critical acclaim had it not been endorsed by someone white. My second reason could be that the preface was written to white people in order for them to take this book seriously. He was letting them know that Fanon had written a book for the revolutionary and all sorts of violence against them could take place if the natives got a hold and understood the change of behavior was needed to overcome colonialism. That change Fanon speaks of is violence. My final reason is that the preface was so verbose, one of the chosen taxes, tactics of racist man and woman. The average non-white person would find it difficult to get through, thereby reducing the chance that there would be a global uprising. Quite frankly, I've had this book on my shelf for a number of years and could not make it through the preface, so I'm thankful that this was the book chosen so I would not have to go it alone. Now, my pause would be, now, did the reading get any easier after the preface? Continuing with the email. My understanding is that Fanon was also a Marxist, which focuses more on class struggle within a society. So the praise for, of white people... Um, so the praise of white people for Fanon's work is understandable since this work may rely more on white guilt than on racism, white supremacy. And even if there was is guilt on the white person's part, it can't it can be easily discarded in favor of the practice of racism, white supremacy. It's possible that when you are engaged in a tragic arrangement, your way of thinking could be compromised. And this reminds me of the organizer of the white privilege conference, Dr. Eddie Moore, Jr., not to say that Fanon's insight is not relevant. The preface writer, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, spoke of gangs, and as you, Gus, stated, we are a very poor imitation of the mobsters in the system of white supremacy. It is unfortunate that a lot of non-white people choose to ignore or pretend that the system doesn't exist and internalize this mobster mentality by believing themselves to be criminals and thugs, never realizing that the real criminals are white. Please forgive one of those sentences consisted of over 20 words. Uh, Fanon speaks of colonialism in my assumption. It's, uh, Fanon speaks of colonialism in my assumption as he is using the dictionary's definition. If one of the characteristics of colonialism is to put non-white people in the worst conditions possible, does this not qualify non-white people in America as colonized? If you're a Marxist and you're, and you're white, you use the cover of the label to practice white supremacy, or in the case of Fanon's work, colonialism. If you are a non-white Marxist, you use the label to pretend that it is not white supremacy or colonialism. It's class supremacy, so you not only confuse yourself, but other non-white people too. Colonized intellectual. I think I asked about that uh, a couple of weeks back. The burgeoning, the, the bourgeois being used as a buffer to hold back the natives while getting the extra piece of watermelon for doing so. Not all non-white people behave in this manner. However, I can see it when there's tension due to the murder of a non-white person. There will be a hand-selected non-white person who agrees with the white sensibilities. 
who is used as a so-called leader of non-white people to calm and quiet their victims. He is hand-selected because white people know that he will first chastise the victims and blame them for their victimhood, then will praise the murderer and insist that he was just doing his job, and because of his intellect, able to do it without notice from the non-white people, he is pretending to service. Is Fanon acting in this way as he writes? Maybe. He chastises us a bit, understatement, uh, but he is also giving useful information, although you have to really pay attention to his words. White people liking and recommending this book. I agree with Red. White people may enjoy this book because it probably helps to continue, not damage, the system of racism, white supremacy. I think white people like this book because Fanon plays to their collective programming of non-white people. He lets he lets us know that their, rea- their creation of niggers, kafirs, etc. holds true for them. So when abusing their non-white victims, there is no guilt because as they see it, they deserve it. Interesting reference to Robinson Crusoe's uh, couple chapters back, I think. Uh, who rescued Friday from cannibals? Crusoe went about the business of converting the savage Friday into a Protestant, therefore making his life better. Fanon here, I believe, is using Friday as the Algerian natives who, who are being ungrateful, decide to turn on their masters. Uh, one of our listeners' commentary. Uh, before, I guess, uh, we have we have time to get to one more caller. Before, did we have any other commentary before we get to the second uh, audio segment? Brief commentary, are folks satisfied? Yes. Can I Yes, sir. Oh. Okay, first I, I wanted to say, uh, ask a question. When the book referred to, uh, in my book it said shoe shiners, but in the uh, reading it referred to the individuals as boot blacks. I was wondering if that is a, you know, uh, translation from a French word or, you know, just the origination of that particular word, if anybody on the call knows but I wanted to mention something briefly about the uh, Senegal and the Congolese he were talking about, uh, African countries that ended up wanting to put, uh, looking at other Africans as foreigners in their country and uh, wanted them out of their country. And uh, when you look, look up these different countries, at one time, both of them was under French rule, and then when they both got their independence, then the results, you know, uh, one another in each other's country, and they wanted uh, them out because of their standings or some propaganda. And then the word Dahomey, you know, to find out that really was a country because we heard of the Dahomey Queen and the spook who sat beside the door. I'll mute my line. Thanks. Well, I think uh, the original French, I guess that might be good if uh, folks want the original French translation of Wretched of the Earth. I think it's uh, Les Dames de la Terre. I did not take French. I'm a victim of racism, but uh, I think that's the French translation. So I think that should be available if you want to check it out so you can see what some of the original French text said in comparison to the translation, whichever version you got, that might be interesting for some of the like boot black might be interesting to see what the original text was. 
Uh, with that, we'll go ahead and get to audio segment number two. If you have additional comments, just make a note. We'll have ample time after the second audio segment concludes. Context of white supremacy, Franz Fanon, The Wretched of the Earth, audio segment number two. Colonialism pulls every string shamelessly and is only too content to set at loggerheads those Africans who only yesterday were leagued against the settlers. The idea of a Saint Bartholomew takes shape in certain minds, and the advocates of colonialism laugh to themselves derisively when they hear magnificent declarations about African unity. Inside a single nation, religion splits up the people into different spiritual communities, all of them kept up and stiffened by colonialism and its instruments. Totally unexpected events break out here and there, in regions where Catholicism or Protestantism predominates, we see the Muslim minorities flinging themselves with unaccustomed ardor into their devotions. The Islamic feast days are revived, and the Muslim religion defends itself inch by inch against the violent absolutism of the Catholic faith. Ministers of state are heard to say for the benefit of certain individuals that if they are not content, they have only to go to Cairo. Sometimes American Protestantism transplants its anti-Catholic prejudices into African soil and keeps up tribal rivalries through religion. Taking the continent as a whole, this religious tension may be responsible for the revival of the communist racial feeling. Africa is divided into black and white and the names that are substituted Africa south of the Sahara, Africa north of the Sahara, do not manage to hide this latent racism. Here it is affirmed that white Africa has a thousand-year-old tradition of culture, that she is Mediterranean, that she is a continuation of Europe, and that she shares in Greco-Latin civilization. Black Africa is looked on as a region that is inert, brutal, uncivilized, in word, savage. There, all day long, you may hear unpleasant remarks about veiled women, polygamy, and the supposed disdain the Arabs have for the feminine sex. All such remarks are reminiscent and their aggressiveness of those that are so often heard coming from the settlers' lips. The national bourgeoisie of each of these two great regions, which has totally assimilated colonialist thought in its most corrupt form, takes over from the Europeans and establishes in the continent a racial philosophy which is extremely harmful for the future of Africa. By its laziness and will to imitation, it promotes 
the engrafting and stiffening of racism which was characteristic of the colonial era. Thus it is by no means astonishing to hear in a country that calls itself African remarks which are neither more nor less than racist and to observe the existence of paternalist behavior which give you the bitter impression that you are in Paris, Brussels, or London. In certain regions of Africa, driveling paternalism with regard to the blacks and the loathsome idea derived from Western culture that the black man is impervious to logic and the sciences reign in all their nakedness. Sometimes it may be ascertained that the black minorities are hemmed in by a kind of semi-slavery which renders legitimate that species of weariness, or in other words, mistrust, which the countries of black Africa feel with regard to the countries of white Africa. It is all too common that a citizen of black Africa hears himself called a Negro by the children when walking the streets of a big town in white Africa, or finds that civil servants address him in pidgin English. Yes, unfortunately, it is not unknown that students from black Africa who attend secondary schools north of the Sahara hear their schoolfellows asking if in their country there are houses, if they know what electricity is, or if they practice cannibalism in their families. Yes, unfortunately, it is not unknown that in certain regions north of the Sahara, Africans coming from countries south of the Sahara meet nationals who implore them to take them, quote, anywhere at all on condition we meet Negroes. In parallel fashion, in certain young states of black Africa, members of parliament or even ministers maintain without a trace of humor that the danger is not at all of a reoccupation of their country by colonialism, but of an eventual invasion by, quote, those vandals of Arabs coming from the north. As we see it, the bankruptcy of the bourgeoisie is not apparent in the economic field only. They have come to power in the name of a narrow nationalism and representing a race. They will prove themselves incapable of triumphantly putting into practice a program with even a minimum of humanist content, in spite of fine-sounding declarations which are devoid of meaning since the speakers bandy about in irresponsible fashion phrases that come straight out of European treatises on morals and political philosophy. When the bourgeoisie is strong, when it can arrange everything and everybody to serve its power, it does not hesitate to affirm positively certain democratic ideas which claim to be universally applicable. There must be very exceptional circumstances if such a bourgeoisie 
solidly based economically, is forced into denying its own humanist ideology. The Western bourgeoisie, though fundamentally racist, most often manages to mask this racism by a multiplicity of nuances which allow it to preserve intact its proclamation of mankind's outstanding dignity. The Western bourgeois has prepared enough fences and railings to have no real fear of the competition of those whom it exploits and holds in contempt. Western bourgeois racial prejudice as regards the nigger and the Arab is a racism of contempt. It is a racism which minimizes what it hates. Bourgeois ideology, however, which is the proclamation of an essential equality between men, manages to appear logical in its own eyes by inviting the sub-men to become human and to take as their prototype Western humanity as incarnated in the Western bourgeoisie. The racial prejudice of the young national bourgeoisie is a racism of defense based on fear. Essentially, it is no different from vulgar tribalism or the rivalries between sects or confraternities. We may understand why keen-witted international observers have hardly taken seriously the great fights of oratory about African unity. For it is true that there are so many cracks in that unity visible to the naked eye that it is only reasonable to insist that all these contradictions ought to be resolved before the day of unity can come. The peoples of Africa have only recently come to know themselves. They have decided in the name of the whole continent to weigh in strongly against the colonial regime. Now the nationalist bourgeoisies who in region after region hasten to make their own fortunes and to set up a national system of exploitation do their utmost to put obstacles in the path of this utopia. The national bourgeoisies, who are quite clear as to what their objectives are, have decided to bar the way to that unity, to that coordinated effort on the part of 250 million men to triumph over stupidity, hunger, and inhumanity at one and the same time. This is why we must understand that African unity can only be achieved through the upward thrust of the people and under the leadership of the people, that is to say, in defiance of the interests of the bourgeoisie. As regards internal affairs and in the sphere of institutions, the national bourgeoisie will give equal proof of its incapacity. In a certain number of underdeveloped countries, the parliamentary game is faked from the beginning. Powerless economically, unable to bring about the existence of coherent social relations, and standing on the principle of its domination as a class, 
the bourgeoisie chooses the solution that seems to it the easiest that of the single party it does not yet have the quiet conscience and the calm that economic power and the control of the state machine alone can give it does not create a state that reassures the ordinary citizen but rather one that rouses his anxiety the state which by its strength and discretion ought to inspire confidence and disarm and lull everybody to sleep on the contrary seeks to impose itself in spectacular fashion it makes a display it jostles people and bullies them thus intimating to the citizen that he is in continual danger the single party is the modern form of the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie unmasked unpainted unscrupulous and cynical it is true that such a dictatorship does not go very far it cannot halt the processes of its own contradictions since the bourgeoisie has not the economic means to ensure its domination and to throw a few crumbs to the rest of the country since moreover it is preoccupied with filling its pockets as rapidly as possible but also as prosaically as possible the country sinks all the more deeply into stagnation and in order to hide this stagnation and to mark this regression to reassure itself and to give itself something to boast about the bourgeoisie can find nothing better to do than to erect grandiose buildings in the capital and to lay out money on what are called prestige expenses the national bourgeoisie turns its back more and more on the interior and on the real facts of its underdeveloped country and tends to look toward the former mother country and the foreign capitalists who count on its obliging compliance as it does not share its profits with the people and in no way allows them to enjoy any of the dues that are paid to it by the big foreign companies it will discover the need for a popular leader to whom will fall the dual role of stabilizing the regime and of perpetuating the domination of the bourgeoisie the bourgeois dictatorship of underdeveloped countries draws its strength from the existence of a leader we know that in the well-developed countries the bourgeois dictatorship is the result of the economic power of the bourgeoisie in the underdeveloped countries on the contrary the leader stands for moral power in whose shelter the thin and poverty-stricken bourgeoisie of the young nation decides to get rich the people who for years on end have seen this leader and heard him speak whom from a distance in a kind of dream have followed his contest with the colonial power spontaneously put their trust in this patriot before independence the leader generally embodies the aspirations of the people for independence political liberty and the national dignity but as soon as independence is declared far from embodying in concrete form the needs of the people 
in what touches bread, land, and the restoration of the country to the sacred hands of the people, the leader will reveal his inner purpose to become the general president of that company of profiteers impatient for their returns which constitutes the national bourgeoisie. In spite of his frequently honest conduct and his sincere declarations, the leader as seen objectively is the fierce defender of these interests, today combined of the national bourgeoisie and the ex-colonial companies. His honesty, which is his soul's true bent, crumbles away little by little. His contact with the masses is so unreal that he comes to believe that his authority is hated, and that the services that he has rendered his country are being called in question. The leader judges the ingratitude of the masses harshly, and every day that passes ranges himself a little more resolutely on the side of the exploiters. He therefore knowingly becomes the aider and abetter of the young bourgeoisie which is plunging into the mire of corruption and pleasure. The economic channels of the young state sink back inevitably into neo-colonialist lines. The national economy formerly protected is today literally controlled. The budget is balanced through loans and gifts, while every three or four months the chief ministers themselves or else their governmental delegations come to the erstwhile mother countries or elsewhere fishing for capital. The former colonial power increases its demands, accumulates concessions and guarantees, and takes fewer and fewer pains to mask the hold it has over the national government. The people stagnate deplorably in unbearable poverty. Slowly they awaken to the unutterable treason of their leaders. This awakening is all the more acute in that the bourgeoisie is incapable of learning its lesson. The distribution of wealth that it affects is not spread out between a great many sectors. It is not ranged among different levels, nor does it set up a hierarchy of half-tones. The new caste is an affront all the more disgusting in that the immense majority nine-tenths of the population continue to die of starvation. The scandalous enrichment, speedy and pitiless, of this caste is accompanied by a decisive awakening on the part of the people, and a growing awareness that promises stormy days to come. The bourgeois caste that section of the nation which annexes for its own profit all the wealth of the country, by a kind of unexpected logic, will pass disparaging judgments upon the other Negroes and the other Arabs that more often than not are reminiscent of the racist doctrines of the former representatives of the colonial power. At one and the same time, the poverty of the people the immoderate money-making of the bourgeois caste 
and its widespread scorn for the rest of the nation will harden thought and action. But such threats will lead to the reaffirmation of authority and the appearance of dictatorship. The leader, who has behind him a lifetime of political action and devoted patriotism, constitutes a screen between the people and the rapacious bourgeoisie, since he stands surety for the ventures of that caste and closes his eyes to their insolence, their mediocrity, and their fundamental immorality. He acts as a breaking power on the awakening consciousness of the people. He comes to the aid of the bourgeois caste and hides his maneuvers from the people, thus becoming the most eager worker in the task of mystifying and bewildering the masses. Every time he speaks to the people, he calls to mind his often heroic life, the struggles he has led in the name of the people, and the victories that in their name he has achieved, thereby intimating clearly to the masses that they ought to go on putting their confidence in him. There are plenty examples of African patriots who have introduced into the cautious political advance of their elders a decisive style characterized by its nationalist outlook. These men came from the backwoods and they proclaimed to the scandal of the dominating power and the shame of the nationals of the capital that they came from the backwoods and that they spoke in the name of the Negroes. These men who have sung the praises of their race, who have taken upon themselves the whole burden of the past, complete with cannibalism and degeneracy, find themselves today, alas, at the head of a team of administrators which turns its back on the jungle, and which proclaims that the vocation of the people is to obey, to go on obeying and to be obedient to the end of time. The leader pacifies the people. For years on end, after independence has been won, we see him, incapable of urging on the people to a concrete task, unable really to open the future to them or of flinging them into the path of national reconstruction, that is to say of their own reconstruction, we see him reassessing the history of independence and recalling the sacred unity of the struggle for liberation. The leader, because he refuses to break up the national bourgeoisie, asks the people to fall back into the past and to become drunk on the remembrance of the epoch which led up to independence. The leader, seen objectively, brings the people to a halt and persists in either expelling them from history or preventing them from taking root in it. During the struggle for liberation, the leader awakened the people and promised them a forward march, heroic and unmitigated. Today, he uses every means to put them to sleep, and three or four times a year, asks them to remember the colonial period and to look back on the long way they have come since then. 
Now it must be said that the masses show themselves totally incapable of appreciating the long way they have come. The peasant who goes on scratching out a living from the soil and the unemployed man who never finds employment do not manage in spite of public holidays and flags, new and brightly colored though they may be, to convince themselves that anything has really changed in their lives. The bourgeoisie who are in power vainly increase the number of processions. The masses have no illusions. They are hungry, and the police officers, though they are now Africans, do not serve to reassure them particularly. The masses begin to sulk. They turn away from this nation in which they have been given no place and begin to lose interest in it. From time to time, however, the leader makes an effort. He speaks on the radio or makes a tour of the country to pacify the people, to calm them and bemuse them. The leader is all the more necessary in that there is no party. During the period of the struggle for independence, there was one right enough, a party led by the present leader. But since then, this party has sadly disintegrated. Nothing is left but the shell of a party, the name, the emblem, and the model. The living party which ought to make possible the free exchange of ideas which have been elaborated according to the real needs of the mass of the people has been transformed into a trade union of individual interests. Since the proclamation of independence the party no longer helps the people to set out its demands, to become more aware of its needs and better able to establish its power. Today the party's mission is to deliver to the people the instructions which issue from the summit. There no longer exists the fruitful give and take from the bottom to the top and from the top to the bottom which creates and guarantees democracy in a party. Quite on the contrary, the party has made itself into a screen between the masses and the leaders. There is no longer any party life for the branches which were set up during the colonial period are today completely demobilized. The militant champs on his bit, but it is that the attitude taken up by certain militants during the struggle for liberation is seen to be justified, for the fact is that in the thick of the fight more than a few militants ask the leaders to formulate a dogma to set out their objectives and to draw up a program. But under the pretext of safeguarding national unity, the leaders categorically refuse to attempt such a task. The only worthwhile dogma, it was repeatedly stated, is the union of the nation against colonialism. And on they went, armed with an impetuous slogan which stood for principles, while their only ideological activity took the form of a series of variants on the theme of the right of peoples to self-determination. Born on the wind of history, which would inevitably sweep away colonialism. When the militants asked whether the wind of history couldn't be a little more clearly analyzed, the leaders gave them instead hope and trust.
the necessity of decolonization and its inevitability and more to that effect. After independence, the party sinks into an extraordinary lethargy. The militants are only called upon when so-called popular manifestations are afoot or international conferences or independent celebrations. The local party leaders are given administrative posts, the party becomes an administration, and the militants disappear into the crowd and take the empty title of citizen. Now that they have fulfilled their historical mission of leading the bourgeoisie to power, they are firmly invited to retire so that the bourgeoisie may carry out its mission in peace and quiet. But we have seen that the national bourgeoisie of underdeveloped countries is incapable of carrying out any mission whatever. After a few years, the breakup of the party becomes obvious and any observer, even the most superficial, can notice that the party, today the skeleton of its former self, only serves to immobilize the people. The party which during the battle had drawn to itself the whole nation is falling to pieces. The intellectuals who on the eve of independence rallied to the party now make it clear by their attitude that they gave their support with no other end in view than to secure their slices of the cake of independence. The party is becoming a means of private advancement. There exists inside the new regime, however, an inequality in the acquisition of wealth and in monopolization. Some have a double source of income and demonstrate that they are specialized in opportunism. Privileges multiply and corruption triumphs, while morality declines. Today the vultures are too numerous and too voracious in proportion to the lean spoils of the national wealth. The party, a true instrument of power in the hands of the bourgeoisie, reinforces the machine and ensures that the people are hemmed in and immobilized. The party helps the government to hold the people down. It becomes more and more clearly anti-democratic, an implement of coercion. The party is objectively, sometimes subjectively, the accomplice of the merchant bourgeoisie. In the same way that the national bourgeoisie conjures away its phase of construction in order to throw itself into the enjoyment of its wealth, in parallel fashion, in the institutional sphere, it jumps the parliamentary phase and chooses a dictatorship of the national socialist type. We now know today that this fascism at high interest which has triumphed for half a century in Latin America is the dialectic result of states which are semi-colonial during the period of independence. In these poor underdeveloped countries where the rule is that the greatest wealth is surrounded by the greatest poverty the army and the police constitute the pillars of the regime. 
an army and a police force another rule which must not be forgotten which are advised by foreign experts the strength of the police force and the power of the army are proportionate to the stagnation in which the rest of the nation is sunk by dint of yearly loans concessions are snatched up by foreigners scandals are numerous ministers grow rich their wives doll themselves up the members of parliament feather their nests and there is not a soul down to the simple policeman or the customs officer who does not join in the great procession of corruption the opposition becomes more aggressive and the people at once catch on to its propaganda from now on their hostility to the bourgeoisie is plainly visible this young bourgeoisie which appears to be afflicted with precocious senility takes no heed of the advice showered upon it and reveals itself incapable of understanding that it would be in its interest to draw a veil even if only the flimsiest kind over its exploitation it is the most Christian newspaper the African Weekly published in Brazzaville which addresses the princes of the regime thus you who are in good positions you and your wives today you enjoy many comforts perhaps a good education a fine house good contacts and many missions on which you are delegated which open new horizons to you but all your wealth forms a hard shell which prevents your seeing the poverty that surrounds you take care this warning coming from the african weekly and addressed to the henchmen of monsieur yolu has we may imagine nothing revolutionary about it what the african weekly wants to point out to the starvers of the congolese people is that god will punish their conduct it continues quote, if there is no room in your heart for consideration toward those who are beneath you there will be no room for you in god's house End quote. it is clear that the national bourgeoisie hardly worries at all about such an indictment with its wavelengths tuned into europe it could continues firmly and resolutely to make the most of the situation the enormous profits which it derives from the exploitation of the people are exported to foreign countries the young national bourgeoisie is often more suspicious of the regime that it has set up than are the foreign companies the national bourgeoisie refuses to invest in its own country and behaves toward the state that protects and nurses it with it must be remarked astonishing ingratitude it acquires foreign securities in the European markets and goes off to spend the weekend in Paris or Hamburg the behavior of the national bourgeoisie of certain underdeveloped countries is reminiscent of the members of a gang who after every holdup hide their share in the loot from the other members who are their accomplices and prudently start thinking about their retirement 
Such behavior shows that more or less consciously the national bourgeoisie is playing to lose if the game goes on too long. They guess that the present situation will not last indefinitely, but they intend to make the most of it. Such exploitation and such contempt for the state, however, inevitably gives rise to discontent among the mass of the people. It is in these conditions that the regime becomes harsher. In the absence of a parliament, it is the army that becomes the arbiter. But sooner or later it will realize its power and will hold over the government's head the threat of a manifesto. As we see it, the national bourgeoisie of certain underdeveloped countries has learned nothing from books. If they had looked closer at the Latin American countries, they doubtless recognized the dangers which threatened them. We may thus conclude that this bourgeoisie in miniature that thrust itself into the forefront is condemned to mark time, accomplishing nothing. In underdeveloped countries, the bourgeois phase is impossibly arid. Certainly, there is a police dictatorship and a profiteering caste, but the construction of an elaborate bourgeois society seems to be condemned to failure. The ranks of decked-out profiteers whose grasping hands scrape up the banknotes from a poverty-stricken country will sooner or later be men of straw in the hands of the army, cleverly handled by foreign experts. In this way, the former mother country practices indirect government, both by the bourgeoisie that it upholds and also by the national army led by its experts, an army that pins the people down, immobilizing and terrorizing them. The observations that we have been able to make about the national bourgeoisie bring us to a conclusion which should cause no surprise. In underdeveloped countries, the bourgeoisie should not be allowed to find the conditions necessary for its existence and its growth. In other words, the combined effort of the masses led by a party and of intellectuals who are highly conscious and armed with revolutionary principles ought to bar the way to this useless and harmful middle class. Context of white supremacy. That is where we will pick up at for next week. France Fanon, The Wretched of the Earth. Uh, if you have commentary you would like to share this week, especially, do not dally. Uh, we have a little less than 30 minutes, so you should not wait till the last minute. You should go ahead and get your hand up right now. Uh, the number six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Uh, seven five three one. I don't think we heard from you before. I think this might actually be the person who uh, wrote in previously. She answered a number of the different questions about why Sartre wrote the uh, introduction and why white people adore this book so much. Uh, caller at uh, seven five three one. Did you have commentary? I did. Thank you for taking my call, and hello to everyone on the line. Uh, 
question about whether or not the book is still difficult to understand? Absolutely. Still is for me. Um, I, it, for me, it could be the narrator. Um, I know you're not supposed to really listen. You're supposed to just listen to what they're saying, not, you know, not worry about how the person sounds. But for me, it seems like the person reading has doesn't really truly understand the words he's reading either because it's not, I don't know, there's no real emphasis on any of the words he's saying. It's just like monotone, and that kind of drives me a little bit crazy. So not only is the narration difficult for me, the narrator difficult for me, but also the words that Fanon, the way he puts the words together, is a little difficult also. Now, I don't know, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but we're talking now about the Algerian battle hadn't already taken place, and uh, the French who had control of Algiers put certain intellectuals in power, and now Fanon is basically blaming them for all the stuff that's happening in Algiers. Am I incorrect, or am I reading this all wrong? Am I listening to this all wrong? That- that sound well i guess for starters the white person at the audio clip at the beginning i think i suspect it was a white person but he said anyone who tells you that they completely understand wretched of the earth phenom they are not being truthful so okay but at any rate um that sounds like it's in the ballpark your analysis i don't know if he would say that the the black bourgeois in algiers that they are to blame for everything or that they are all to blame for other things that are wrong, but it certainly seems like, you know, he has tremendous cr- criticism uh, of what they're doing and a lot of culpability uh, lies. He, he seems to be putting it on the black bourgeoisie. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's kind of difficult because it seems like what he's now saying, okay, natives, now you have to fight your own again. I mean, we've been doing that forever, right? And it hasn't been working. So it doesn't seem like, like Emmy said earlier, it's not really doing anything for the revolutionary. It's just kind of, oh, oh, I don't know. Maybe that's why white people like the book, because it doesn't say anything. It just goes around in a circle, and it does the same thing that white people have been doing for us for centuries, blame the victims for their troubles. So I don't, I don't see where this book is helpful at all. At first I thought it was going to be, and uh, I was really looking forward to it because I didn't have to do it by myself. But mm, I could keep it on my shelf, you know. It, it's fine. But I'll still do, I'll do the best to participate. And uh, thank you for taking my call. Indeed, indeed. I, I am not a fan of having books that feel like it is labor to read. Like each turn of the page is, uh, I do not like that feeling as though I'm on a job and I'm looking at the clock like, how many more? Oh, God, we're still here. I do not like having that that feeling uh, reading books, particularly books about racism. Uh, Other folks who dialed in with the caller at 5771. Uh, Did you have commentary? 5771. Uh, Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, Greetings, Gus and greetings, callers. Um, after reading, uh, I guess this this is my second time reading this book. It is, it it turns out that this book is not a very good anti-racist book. 
uh, it you know focused more on colonialism, which I, I, I kind of asked that question uh, when the session started about does he use colonialism and racism you know interchangeably, and it doesn't seem like he's using that interchangeably. So uh, this book is more about anti-colonialism, more of a political book, if you ask me, but not very. Uh, not not a very good uh, not a very good anti-racist book. Uh, even though in this last uh, reading session he used the term racism more than than any other parts of the sessions that uh, we've read. So uh, and also the importance of words. Now in my translation, uh, when they were talking about uh, black Africans walking in the white African uh, cities and here. The children call. Now, in the in the in the recording, he used the word Negro, but in my translation, the word is the word that's used is nigger. Uh, in uh, one part uh, where it says uh, the Western bourgeoisie race racism towards the the nigger. Now, racism is in my translation, but I think the recording used the word prejudice. And then there's one other one where he replaces in the recording the term jungle is used, but interior is used. So the thing about translation, you know, word translation is it, it's very confusing. So when you talk about, well, I guess when white people talk about, you know, we'll recommend this book, you know, the first thing I want to ask them is like, okay, which translation are you using? Because you know, the one I have is from Richard Philcox, and I think the one from the recording is from Constance Farrington. Uh, I believe they're both white people. So, uh, you know, <laughs> that's the question I like to ask, you know, the next person who recommends this book, like, which translation are you using? So uh, that is, uh, that's all I have for now. Uh, personally, I think you might be on a headset of sorts. Uh, did you have commentary? Lawn should be open. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes, thank you. I've just started um, reading the book today, and from the last reading, um, what I'm noticing is that there's a number of groups um, the national bourgeoisie, the state, the party, the party and the state may be the same group, the masses. Um, that's pretty much the groups that I'm seeing today on the second reading. And since I'm just beginning to assess, I would say that um, a lot of blame has been mentioned as being assigned to all of these groups in some form or fashion, uh, but the one group that I have not heard today in the second reading um, criticized, uh, maybe in a minor way regarding the, is the, white, the system of white supremacy. Um, I think he and it referred to um, one criticism, which was their, the, the system of racism, white supremacy, their control over all of these groups. 
but that was a minor detail to my reading um, in the way that these other groups are uh, compared to the way these other groups are being signed uh, truckloads of criticism for what they themselves have wrought. And um, lastly, I would say that um, the caller which spoke before me just now, um, I have both translations that he mentioned and I'm going back and forth um, without, you know, to the best of my ability and not getting lost doing that. And I noticed the same thing, the words. Um, so I would say that in the translation that I suspect that the system of racism, white supremacy is practicing their art in the translation. And those are my comments for now. Thank you. Indeed, words are very important. Uh, let's see, Mr. Demery for Emmy, uh, retired firefighter, uh, you all are with us as well. Did you all have commentary? No. Can I be Yes, heard? can I be heard? Oh, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I don't have any really any new commentary about the section that we just listened to. What I said before is kind of really how I'm still feeling. I, there was one moment, and unfortunately, I don't have um, the version that we're listening to. But he told the like middle class bourgeoisie that they have their comforts, but that they should like watch out. Um, I would have liked a little bit more on that, like watch out exactly for what. Um, but I kind of understood that just a little bit, like, you know, don't be um, anesthetized by your comforts um, and your education and your money and stuff like that. But I'm not even so sure if that's the angle he was coming at. I have to agree um, with the female caller, one of the female callers before on this section. Um, and I'm trying to remember exactly what she said, but when she said it, I, I really did. I was like, yeah, spot on. Um, Oh, about the narrator. Yeah, I think the narrator makes it a little difficult, too, um, because it is very monotone. And sometimes emphasis and things like that could make a difference um, in understanding the text. I thought about that as well. But even even when I just read my version of the text on my own, I'm still confused um, and left with more questions than answers um, and with no solutions. And the the other thing she said that I thought was poignant was, that he's, it does appear that he is talking more to the black bourgeoisie or whatnot, if that's what the term he's using, than he is about or to white people. Um, so that could create more quote unquote infighting or something like that by saying that that's, that's our real problem is middle-class bourgeoisie black people and not the system of white supremacy. So I think she, she made some great points. Um, and thank you all for listening. Appreciate your patience, Mr. Demery Four. Thank you, Emmy. Okay, I'll be here. Yes, sir. Okay, um, you know, the last part when he, uh, I guess what happens with the national bourgeois is that it eventually turns 
into a party and the state of the nation, you know, I guess it's saying that the national bourgeois sells out and to the foreign companies and the foreigners grab concessions and the wives become foozies. Members of uh, legislature line their pockets and uh, everybody down to the police officers and custom officials get a chunk of the uh, corruption. Well, you know, that sounds pretty much on point with, uh, you know, present times. And the thing I wanted to say is for the book being written in 1961, for him to have the insight, you know, uh, the enormity of his insight is astonishing, you know, uh, for that particular period where I know for myself, it, just thinking about the independence of Africa during that time in the 60s, you would think it was a good thing happening they gaining their independence and would be able to run their own country. But from the looks of this, uh, they, it was all a facade. They wasn't really uh, exercising uh, liberation or running their own countries at all. And then the last part where uh, the female called before me, uh, they were talking about the Christian magazine where the, they were warning the men in power, um, the education, their beautiful homes, uh, that they should beware that um, in the end, they wasn't uh, talking about anything revolutionary at all. They were talking about something Christian that uh, God was going to repay the people who I guess was exacting evil up on the other. I'll mute my line. Indeed. Uh, retired firefighter, did you have commentary you were going to share? Uh, yes. Uh, I, what just come to, came to my mind was about, uh, I'm thinking during that time, uh, I would say uh, anywhere from uh, uh, the time when Ghana I believe Ghana was the uh, first uh, uh, quote-unquote country in Africa uh, to uh, successfully, uh, well, I don't know, I don't know if you want to call it success, success or not, uh, but it was deemed as being successfully uh, to uh, run the white people out of that part of Africa. Uh, it became, by, by that time, the late 50s, early 60s, uh, that whole effort out of non-white people was, in my opinion, kind of romanticized. Uh, and, you know, in this book, kind of like uh, uh, gives an analysis of what was going on and how how uh, it, things happened and uh, I guess gave some instructions on how to keep it going. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, uh, I think through uh, study uh, by people like Mr. Fuller, uh, he certainly was able to uh, uh, be, be more accurate, in my opinion, uh, on what was the problem. <laughs> and 
and break down terminology in a much more simplified form. Uh, so uh, the victims of racism and white supremacy uh, can uh, have a better understanding of what's going on globally and what is it at the seat of every problem, including uh, in the way of justice. And uh, so uh, this book doesn't quite get it, in my opinion. It doesn't quite get it. Uh, but it is identifiable with the, the what I think is what was the uh, the uh, interest out of uh, no, I would say non-white people who had an interest in to uh, solving uh, global problems and and they may not have been using the term racism uh, directly, uh, but uh, some some words like freedom or liberation, you know, things like that. Uh, because when I first uh, started really consciously. Uh, Seeking for some answers, I didn't use uh, solely racism or white supremacy. Uh, I was using words like freedom and liberation and that sort of stuff like that. And uh, so I can see that that is being uh, in connection with books like the one that we are reading right now. And I can't wait for it to be over with. <laughs> uh, with this particular book anyway. And uh, those are those are my thoughts. Retired firefighter. Can't wait for it to be over with. Mm -hmm. Also thought that was a uh, great point from Mr. Demi Ford. Despite all that, I do think that it's pretty, uh, Prince Fanon did have some pretty accurate insight for his time period. Uh, perhaps we would be less critical, maybe, or some of his insight uh, if we were hearing it at that time. Um, as opposed to hearing it 50 years on. But I did say last week, I don't think this book has aged well, uh, in my opinion. I could be in error. I know it's still, you know, a top seller, but... Mm. Uh, did we miss anybody? Anybody have any... Oh, uh, let's see. 7531, did you have additional commentary you were going to share? 7531? She's just hanging out. Uh, anybody else have commentary they wanted to make sure they get in? Uh, we're getting close to the end. Any commentary folks want to make sure they get in? Oh, I'm sorry. I was muted. I muted myself. We hear you. Hear me? Yes, okay. Um, yeah. Somewhere in the text, um, it spoke of unity. Um, I, I'm assuming it was native unity, not the bourgeois unity, not, not, not bourgeois non-white people getting together, but non-white natives getting together as far as unity goes and that there was no way that that was about to happen where um i like mr fuller's idea of united independent i think that's great but having said that mr fuller also had the benefit of not being in a tragic arrangement and i hate to bring that back up but i I think that really weighs heavy on the words you have to say. Not to say that anyone who was in that particular um, arrangement and trying to be an anti-racist can't be, 
It's just, you know, you, you find some of their information a little suspect because you're not sure, you know, what are they thinking? What are they saying? Because where is it coming from? Is it coming from their white partner or is this, or these their own thoughts that they're thinking? I mean, you know, they're very much influenced. So I think um, that had Fanon uh, lived, and was able to read Mr. Fuller's work, maybe he would have, it, maybe it would, the book would have been a little different. Maybe he would have been a little more revolutionary. Maybe he would have made more uh, suggestions on how to defend yourself against it, how to fight against it. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Indeed. Indeed. Appreciate that. Um, I did want to get in, number one, even though we are not reading Black Skin, White Mask, I remember when I said we should, you know, read Fanon just to say that we covered him, but I wanted to read Black Skin, White Mask. I think that's in the audio record <laughs> for for all time's sake. Uh, but Black Skin, White Mask, in addition to being much, much shorter than The Wretched of the Earth, Black Skin, White Mask was written as his thesis, and it was rejected. Uh, and he eventually just published it as a book. But I just I think that's important because I asked the question about audience before. Many of us are struggling to read this book, and I think many of us, not all, but many of us, uh, have you know had uh, some schooling, uh, university, collegiate schooling, what have you, and uh, are struggling mightily with reading, interpreting this text. So you know, just speaking to audience, if he wrote this book to be his thesis. I don't think you're writing for typical black people who have been for generations denied quality education. The other thing I was going to ask, uh, I think a few people have said that they don't think this book is uh, high caliber anti-racist literature uh, in a concise way. Uh, if anyone could answer in a very, con like less than 60 seconds, what are some of the qualities of a high quality counter-racist textbook? Clarity. Clarity. Can you give a little bit more about clarity in less than 60 seconds? Yes, that it makes sense and that it doesn't take pages and pages and pages to say one very simple thing. Um, like I can follow A, B, C, D, one, two, three, four, and that it's linear even. I know that's maybe Eurocentric in some people's perspectives that things be linear, but that it's linear. It follows a very clear train of thought that it introduces its end point at the very beginning. So I know what all the stuff in the middle is going to be about. Like it just makes sense. It doesn't matter what grade level. It just makes sense. Appreciate that, Amy. Anybody else uh, want to comment? Uh, what qualities make for high quality counter or anti-racist literature, since that's what was uh, used uh, in less than 60 seconds? Uh, I would probably say just uh, more usage of the word racism or white supremacy. I think I commented on this book that it doesn't even hardly use the term racism. Uh, well, at least from the text that we're reading up to now. I would say that um, it's because uh, I would say high-level counter-racist literature would be more, um, it resonates. Uh, it's like a tuning fork. I, I can, you know, vibe, I could know that this person is clear, not struggling with the fact of uh, the system of racism, white supremacy. 
I would say information, information that's based on logic. Anything else, folks? Good. We got everybody. Great to, to consider. We, I think we've read enough textbooks here for the book club that folks should have a pretty good sense of what type of literature you appreciate and what qualities uh, make for, hey, this is going to be a read that I can recommend to other black people that I think they'll really be able to get information, even if, and I'm not saying if you have to use a dictionary, that's great. Expanding your vocabulary is great. Dr. Marimba Ani, grand, no problem there at all. Just saying that while I'm learning new words, I should not be impaired. That shouldn't be an obstacle for me actually understanding the purpose for you writing your book. Clarity. That's it. Uh, we will be here next Friday, uh, session number six. We are beyond the halfway point. We still got a ways to go, but we are inching slowly towards the conclusion of the text. Uh, if folks have additional comments, because there's so many additional reviews and uh, just so many comments uh, that people have made, analyses that people have made of this text over the past 50 years plus, uh, if you find anything uh, of note, like I said, to me, that was amazing, finding that his wife uh, did the writing. He dictated it to her, the last portion of the book, and uh, that Black Skin, White Mass was originally his thesis. Uh, just finding out more background information, that can be very helpful uh, in getting a better understanding of the text that we're reading and why this is such a popular, lionized text. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow for the compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, tune in. We'll catch up on what's going down the last seven days. Maybe we'll even have all the energy in the room for the Mayweather-McGregor fight. Folks will be all excited in anticipation. Uh, I am feeling much better, so I think we will begin the process of getting our ring dates for the programs that had to be scrapped and rescheduled to see if we can get Pam back on and some of our other guests. The uh, back injury just played havoc with the schedule, but thankfully that is looking like it is a distant memory moving forward, feeling better. Uh, if you have problems, questions, if you're listening to the archives and want to share comments on the text, feel free until justice at gmail.com. Uh, that said, uh, I think this is the last Friday in August uh, for some that symbolically marks the end of summer 2017 for those of us here in the U.S. Uh, if you want to get out and get in one last hurrah uh, as the summer winds down, grand. That does not mean you do not want to be codified. Uh, sobriety would still be best under the system of white supremacy. Uh, if you're going to go out, get your sunshine, go to the beach, a road trip, whatever you're going to do. Grand race soldiers, they do not stop abusing black people for end of the summer parties. Uh, and if you are under the influence, that might make it a bit difficult for you to make quality decisions, particularly if you have to make life saving decisions at a moment where you are intoxicated oh man there's a long record that racists they have done a job on us uh, when we are just not able to think to the best of our abilities because of the poisons that they put out and then they get to come in and do whatever they want and justify it oh yeah he was you know well in times been smoking crack all day or smoked a few joints looked like he had a couple uh, beers whatever it is they're great at getting those uh, scenarios out race soldier with a badge or no. So just keep that in mind. If you're going to have your fun and, and consume whatever narcotics, uh, get to one spot and stay there. That way you don't have to be out and about. And particularly make sure you're not doing any of that in the presence of whites. That is asking for all kinds of trouble. That said, 
Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh.